Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. We thank you that we are able to do that by the blood of Christ. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would make this time your own. I've done my work, um, but all the sermon prep in the world can't force your hand. You have to come and visit us by your spirit in this time, and I pray that you would cause these scriptures to come alive, that we may see Jesus and his death and resurrection. Lord, you are glorious, and we are so grateful to be in your presence. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is our final day preaching through the book of Luke. It was Matt Franchetti who said we've been preaching in the book longer than the earthly ministry of Jesus. So I think that's pretty funny. Uh, I've given serious thought to just, Matt, I would just like to hire you as my joke writer for my sermons. All right. So see me afterwards. We'll, we'll figure out a price. All right. All right. I just think that's really funny. Um, but today it comes to a close. We are going to miss you, Luke. We've been with you for a while. You've been a good companion. Uh, listen to the word of the Lord, chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. I have a scripture for you in a second. If not, we'll just press on. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. The word of the Lord. So, this is my camera. <clears throat> I take it on, usually just for trips. This is my camera. It's been with me for a while. Uh, as an introduction to today's sermon, I want to show you just a couple of pictures from a trip that Amy and I made to Israel in 2015. We don't always get the opportunity to travel overseas, but every once in a while, God blesses us and gives us an opportunity, and so Amy was working for a company. They had an office in Israel, and we went. It was a great trip. Now, I, I'm not going to show you all my pictures. If you want to see my pictures, you come over to my house anytime. I'll be more than glad to show them to you. Uh, but And the thing you need to know, in Israel, everywhere in the country where something happened in the life of Jesus, some church, usually the Catholic church, they build a chapel or a church building. It's like Disneyland for Christians. I only have time to show you just a couple pictures of one particular landmark. 
the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. According to the Roman Catholics and others, uh, some other churches, this is the place where Jesus was anointed and buried. Therefore, it's also the location of his resurrection. So here it is from a distance. <clears throat> We're up on a... And here it is. Here's the front of the church building. In the first century, the Israelites buried their dead in caves. And next picture is Amy kind of walking through one of those caves right along the side of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right, right near Jesus' tomb. And then what they did is they carved away all this rock and they created a memorial in the place where they say Jesus is buried. And that's the picture of the memorial. And then that is the door supposedly leading into the cave where Jesus was buried. That is the stone of anointing. So as you walk through the front door, you'll see this particular stone. And then there, the next picture is me um, right in front of that stone, about placing my hand on it. You got that picture there, Ben? There it is. Now, I must confess that at this particular moment when that picture was being taken, I shouldn't have done it, but I was actually poking fun at the woman to my right who had a bag and she was pouring out all of these scarves onto the stone. And so me touching the stone, I was, I was poking fun at not only her, but the people coming into the place. I shouldn't have done it. I confess it as sin today, but I did it. And um, why in the world would she want to put scarves on the stone? Well, because according to many Christians, that particular stone is holy. It's a holy object. And so anything that touches it becomes a relic an everyday item that conveys some of the holiness from the source it touches. So, the very fact that I'm touching the stone makes me a relic, a holy object. You didn't realize I had that kind of power, did you? Amy was so uncomfortable with me touching this stone and asking me to take this particular picture that she literally dropped this camera onto the stone, making this a relic, a holy object as well. If you want to come up and touch it, you can. I don't suggest it, but you can. The only problem with this idea of making relics in this particular place is that stone was donated in the 19th century with the restoration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's nothing holy about it. But people by the hundreds and thousands drop their trinkets on it in an effort to produce magic. Magic, to seek, the, to seek power or holiness or God's presence without the need for Jesus Christ. To put an object on this own and call it holy is to completely bypass the person of Christ, especially his death and resurrection, which is the very thing this stone is meant to represent. And all of this got me thinking, where in my life am I looking for magic? Where am I in my life seeking God's presence without the need for Jesus? Without the need for his death and resurrection? Now, I'm really not competent enough to talk about the sin of the scarf woman. I don't know, not sure why she was there, what kind of comfort she was seeking on that day. 
why it was so hard for her to find the real Jesus and seek after him. I'm only really competent enough to talk about my own sin here today. And for now, I'll just say that in preparing this sermon, God showed me clearly that I am no different in my sin than this woman. And apparently, neither were Jesus' own disciples. Throughout Jesus' whole ministry on earth, they could not see him for who he truly was. They couldn't understand his death and resurrection, although he talked about it all the time. And now he appears to them in his resurrected and glorified body, and they are in an utter state of disbelief. And you can hardly blame them. Nobody had ever seen a resurrected and glorified body. Some of them saw Lazarus, right? But that was just the resurrected body. He returned to his own body. It wasn't anything like the body of Christ coming forth from the resurrection. So what does he do? He lets them touch him eats a few pieces of fish to prove that he's not some type of ghost. Jesus, in his glorified body, is real. Praise God. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophet, the Psalms. That's just Jesus' way of saying the whole Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. That statement is the key to understanding not only this passage, but the key to understanding the whole Bible. I've talked about Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture in other sermons. The easiest way that I understand fulfillment, the easiest way for me to understand it is this. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He fulfills it. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament and you will truly understand it. But first, he must open your eyes to see him there. But fulfillment means more than simply the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. It ultimately means that Jesus is the reality of everything in the Old Testament. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, as an example of this, is the temple of God. Jesus fulfills the temple by becoming the temple himself. Now think about that for a second. I'll blow your mind. What does it mean that Jesus is the temple of God? In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God lived on earth. It was the place where heaven and earth intersected each other. Modern Christians have a very difficult time with this one. We don't, don't normally think of the intersection of heaven and earth. To the modern Christian mind, earth is here, and heaven is somewhere out there. Heaven is the place where we go when we die. But to the first century Jewish mind, heaven and earth overlapped each other at the temple. Now think about it for a second. Think of Jesus as the true temple. The person of Jesus, when he was walking around on earth with his disciples, when he was healing the sick, he was the true temple. The place where heaven and earth came together. Wherever he went, there was the presence of God on earth. Now throughout the book of Luke, 
and, and the other Gospels, Jesus was making it clear that now that he was on earth, there was no need for the physical temple. It was no longer necessary. And now you know why the religious leaders were so upset with him. Up until that particular moment, they had their magic. They had something better than scarves dropped onto a stone slab. They had the temple of God. And in their thinking, they had cornered the market on holiness. But the only problem is they didn't have Jesus, the true temple. They couldn't see him. Their minds were not open to the scriptures. Back to Luke 24. After opening their minds to the scriptures, he gives a summary of the whole Old Testament. And by the way, this is a wonderful summary of the gospel. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. When you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you should be looking for Christ, his death and resurrection, and the forgiveness that comes from it. Another quick example for you from the Old Testament God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Let me read just a couple of verses of Genesis 22, verses 6 through 8. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So when Jesus opened the eyes of the disciples in Luke 24, they were finally able to see that the lamb provided by God as a burnt offering for Abraham was his very own son, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Once you look for it, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. No wonder they were so excited returning to Jerusalem with great joy. They finally understood the meaning of everything. <laughs> you have to be joyful when you finally understand what the meaning of everything is. Luke 24, verses 48 through 53. And this is where, in my mind, it gets really amazing. Verse 4, beginning with 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So here's... The million-dollar question. When Jesus was carried up into heaven, where did the temple go? Luke gives us a little bit of a hint when he says the disciples are to go back to the city of Jerusalem and wait for power on high, which is a reference to God's Holy Spirit. The temple went back to Jerusalem with the disciples. 
the temple of the living God is now the disciples as the foundation for the whole church. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And by the way, the you in that verse is plural. It's not that I am the temple of God by myself. It's an American way of thinking about things with our constant focus on the individual, me, myself, I. According to Scripture, I am only one stone in that temple. You are only one stone in that temple. We, as the church, we are the temple of God. We are the place where heaven and earth intersect. Everywhere we go, where two or three are gathered, is the presence of the Lord. Now, think about that for a second. That is extremely humbling. Everything you do as the body of Christ is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Now we know why Paul, in all of his epistles, is so, so, so much encouraging us to live a life of holiness. Now we understand why Jesus in the book of John prays for the unity of his body, the temple. We are the place where heaven and earth intersect, where God comes by his spirit in power. Without this unity, the Holy of Spirit as God's presence on earth will not dwell powerfully in our midst. When we give our lives to Christ, the Spirit comes. We know that. And he is always with us. But if we do not act like the church, and we are not unified as one, he does not come in power. And now you understand why the past election in the United States had, had such a devastating blow on the temple of God, the body of Christ. In the United States, it divided us. Republican, independent, Democrat. But the body of Christ should never be divided up that way. The body of Christ is not meant to be divided. It is to be one so that the power of God's spirit may come upon it. So that the world may know that he, was, he had to die and he was resurrected to new life and ascended into heaven. And finally, verse 53 and they were continually in the temple blessing God. The book of Luke ends in the same place where it begins, at the temple. If you go to the first chapter of Luke, you will see Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in the temple. And don't forget in Luke chapter 2, it's been a while since we've been there, but when Jesus gets lost, you remember when he gets lost during the Passover? Do you remember where his parents found him? He was in Jerusalem at the temple. The book of Luke begins with Jesus at the temple, and it ends with the disciples at the temple. Pretty clear what Luke is trying to tell us. There is great joy when Jesus is in the presence of his temple, whether in his person or by the power of his spirit, which is us. Now, in the same way, let me end this sermon where I began with the anointing stone, my quest for magic. My quest for the magic scarf, as it were, which, which I said was my way of seeking God's power or presence without Jesus, without his death and resurrection. 
know, I was reflecting on it as preparing the sermon, and I, I think I see this most frequently these days in my devotions, in my Bible reading, in my prayer life. When we, when we read the Bible, we are meant to have great joy, but I often do not. I, like the disciples, need God to open my mind to understand the Bible, to see Jesus in every part. And I confess to you, I often open the Bible looking for me in its pages, my need, my glory, what I can get out of it. So I've learned to confess, God, you know my heart. You know I'm not interested in reading your word today. Please forgive me. Open my heart that I may see Jesus. And here's the kicker. Sometimes God reveals himself like I desire, and sometimes he doesn't. Those words aren't magic. If I say them in just the right order or with just the right amount of passion, it doesn't mean God is going to show up like a genie. When God doesn't reveal himself the way I desire, I have a deeper confession to make. God is God, and I am not. He has perfect control over my life. I do not. This includes every aspect of my life, including my devotions. God knows best what I need at any given moment. I do not. It is impossible for me to be discouraged, frustrated, or joyless unless I think I know what's best for my life, what's best for my devotions, what's best for my family. When I am confident I know what's best, my life dissolves quickly into fear and frustration. I lose sight of the person of Jesus. His death and resurrection is no longer of supreme importance to me. And his power seems to just go away. But when I'm clueless about what's best for me, then I'm at peace, full of God's, full of the joy in God's sovereign plan for my life. I can thank God for everything in my life, even the hard things, the sufferings. And then I become curious and expectant to see what God will do next. When I am clueless about what's best, I see Jesus everywhere. His death and resurrection becomes my supreme focus, my central focus. And when the death and resurrection of Jesus is the church's central focus, this is the moment God steps into his temple as the sovereign Lord of the universe. This is what happened when the disciples went back to Jerusalem full of joy. That's the kind of joy we want, right? Yes. May it be so for us. God's church, his holy temple. Lord, we are so thankful that beside all the sin of our lives that you have conquered sin through your death and resurrection. Forgive us for these times where we just kind of of whimper into your presence, not really wanting to read your word, not even really wanting to be with you. And as Bob said earlier, we just want to learn how to be with you for just being with you and not getting anything out of it our relationship with you. You are the sovereign Lord of our lives. You are the sovereign Lord 
of your temple, your church. And I pray that you would show us what you are doing in our midst. Help us to be curious and expectant to see what you will do next. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.